Welcome to Our Faith in Writing. I'm Charlotte Donlin. As a writer and a spiritual director for writers, I believe writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. Our Faith in Writing explores the intersection of writing and faith through conversations about the writing process, the reading life, contemplative practices, and more. Thanks for listening. You're about to hear an episode from one of my old podcasts that explores themes connected to our faith in writing. You may hear the Lists of Nine podcast or the Art and Faith Unplugged podcast mentioned during this episode, and that's okay. You're still here with us at Our Faith in Writing. Thanks again for listening. Today, my guest is Katherine Ricketts. Thank you, Kat, for being here. So good to be here, Charlotte. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read a bit about you. I'll share your bio. And also for new listeners, um, one reason this is called Art and Faith Unplugged is because there's no fancy intro, no fancy outro, no editing. So Kat and I are going to talk and have a conversation. And if either of us messes up or stumbles over our words, we will keep going and correct ourselves. Um, Kat, thanks so much for being willing to... um, (laughs) to be on an epi- on a podcast that doesn't have an editor. So thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, Catherine Ricketts is an essayist and songwriter based in Philadelphia. Her literary nonfiction about the arts, grief, and joy, and spirituality appears on the Plowshares blog, in Image Journal, The Millions, Paste, and NPR affiliate The Key. And she has a piece forthcoming in the Christian century. Concurrent with her own writing, Kat has maintained a vibrant career in the arts and is very passionate about nurturing the work of other artists, whether by writing about them, commissioning new work, or producing performances. She is currently at work on two books of nonfiction, one about grief and beauty, the other about motherhood and artistic practice. You can find Kat on Instagram at by Catherine Ricketts, all one word with no other characters in there, where she hosts the semi-weekly IG Live Lullaby or on the web at www.catherinedanaricketts.com. And I will put um, those links in the show notes for this episode that you can find at charlottedonlin.com. Kat, thanks again for being here. It's so good to see you and have some time to talk to you about art and mothering and I'm sure all kinds of other things. Thanks, Charlotte. So good to see you too. Okay, so I would love for you to tell us a bit about your professional background as an arts presenter and how you became... um, passionate about nurturing the artistic practice of other artists? Sure. So um, I'm 33 years old. And um, since I graduated from college, my career has um, alternated back and forth between roles in um, full-time ministry and roles working for um, arts institutions in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and I'll focus right now on, on, um, those arts institutions. Um, 
I have, I've done some, um, some arts journalism, um, and starting out writing for Paste Magazine as a college intern. That wasn't in Philly. That they're based in Atlanta. Um, but writing about musicians was really interesting to me as a college student and as a young adult. So I did some of that um, and just loved the opportunity to tell artists stories and to learn more about their practices and what inspires them um, and how their biographies and their art fit together. Um, and then I have also worked in presenting live arts events. Um, so for um, the music format public radio station in Philadelphia, um, I've worked on producing concerts. And um, for the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, which is a festival of experimental dance and theater and music. Um, and then most recently at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, um, I had a role where I coordinated a weekly concert series um, where we presented jazz and folk music and international music. Um, and then I also worked on special projects where we commissioned new um, performances from dance companies, from musicians, um, from theater companies, all with the aim of helping to connect artists with audiences and um, helping to bring the museum's collection of visual art to life through the live arts and through performance. Um, and in all of this work, I love the opportunity to sit down with an artist and talk with them about their creative practice to see the spark in their eye. There's always this like glimmer of magic, um, especially as an artist is at the beginning of a project and um, generating new ideas. And especially in commissioning work where I got to say to an artist, hey, we have a couple thousand dollars and I would love um to support you in creating something new inspired by a work of art that's interesting to you. Um, to be able to give artists resources and opportunities um, from an institution is a really powerful thing for um, disciplines that really lack institutional support um, financially and in terms of connecting with audiences, um, many artists lack those resources and it, it has been really fun to give those to them. Um, and I will say I, um, left the museum last summer because live arts were not happening. So sad. Um, and have an administrative day job and have really enjoyed returning to journalism um, as a way to tell the stories of artists and to, um, to, yeah, help them to connect with audiences. Yeah. Well, it's so good to hear that you're able to, or that you've been able since college really to um, use your gifts and um, your desires for telling those stories in ways that people get to read about and um, see and um, enjoy the fruits of your labor. Um, 
So I have a question with regard to the um, interviews and stories you've been writing about local musicians since the pandemic. Um, What kind of changes in vibe have you noticed from, or have there been any kind of patterns or themes that you've picked up on um, from the artists you've, you've talked to since the pandemic started? Yeah. Um, So most of the work that I've been doing in arts journalism since the pandemic has been interviewing musicians about their favorite works of visual art um, and how those um, inspire their work as musicians. So I think because of my work at the museum, I've become really interested in um, how different um, disciplines in, in the arts speak to each other. Um, one of the questions that I have asked regularly is, um, is there a space, whether it's a, a block in Philadelphia or, um, a big arts institution or a community that you look to for, um, visual inspiration and pretty much everyone that I've interviewed has talked about their immediate neighborhood. Um, because they're not touring anymore. Um, they are, uh, not even out and about in the city the way that they used to be. Um, they're noticing more the architecture on their block, um, the way that the people in their neighborhood dress, um, and they're finding inspiration just very close to home. And that's really interesting to me. I think, um, especially as, uh, a new mother. So I have a two-year-old and I'm expecting my second son in a month now. Um, my world, pandemic or no pandemic, has become quite small. Um, and I am looking for inspiration in the mundane, the details immediately around me. And I think it's really interesting that the pandemic has... Um, kind of opened everyone's eyes to what is beautiful and inspiring or um, troubling and therefore inspiring um, right right on their block or right in their home even. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that people are noticing those things. I mean, that was definitely part of my experience um, as soon as quarantine started and most, more people were exercising, you know, walking people I'd never seen before who are usually at work all day or, or going to gyms that were closed. And, um, one of my favorites was seeing the people who started running for the first time in like 20 years, <laughs> I think they'd just be <laughs> miserable trying to run. But then after a couple of months, they were, um, not as miserable. They're the ones um, I respect the most Yeah, the ones that are struggling. I'm like, yes, you're doing yes. it. Yeah. So um, that actually ties into um, the essay you wrote recently for Plowshares and um, the idea of noticing and how mothering can shift our gaze. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this essay um, and even read an excerpt for us? Sure. Um, So I have been really interested since becoming a mother in um, how, especially in the earliest years of parenting, when um, 
the work of care demands so much from a mother's body and mind and her time, how artists persist in their creative practices. Um, especially, like I said before, in fields where there's very little institutional support um, and funding. Um, so this is an essay that explores um, not the tensions, which can feel insurmountable and so just very obvious, but the unique compatibilities between motherhood and the artistic life. Um, which is really useful to me at this stage, um, because it helps to spur me on in my own writing practice. So, um, I looked at the work of the essayist, Leslie Jameson and the novelist and essayist, um, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, I was drawn to Leslie Jameson's work because she is writing explicitly lately about how motherhood has changed the way that she sees the world and therefore what of the world she invites her readers to see. Um, and then I am really interested in Marilyn Robinson's work um, because I think vision, especially in the book Gilead, is a theme. Um, John Ames, who's the protagonist and narrator of Gilead, has such um, acute attention to the world around him um, and just spends a huge part of the book, which is a letter to his very young son, um, kind of showing his son the beauty of the world. Um, and so this essay suggests that in motherhood, because, as I was saying before, our worlds become very small, um, we are forced to attend to very small things, whether that is our um, our children's the specific timbre of our child's cry, so that we know are they hungry, are they tired um, or uh, Leslie Jameson talks about the flutter of her of her daughter's eyelids, whether she's um, about to wake up or just getting into a deep sleep. Um, so there are just there are all of these small things that we have to attend to as mothers, and that heightens our general sense of attention to the world. Mm-hmm. I will read a little excerpt here. Um, then we can talk about it more and see what's interesting yeah. to you. Yes. In her essay, Other Voices, Other Rooms, Leslie Jameson suggests that art asks us to briefly abandon our lives in order to come back with a changed gaze. And one of the great virtues of Robinson's novels is the way they alter our vision. Ames trains us, as he trained his father, to notice light. His attention is fixed on sunshine, fire, moonlight, fireflies. He notices a shimmer on a child's hair in the sunlight. There are rainbow colors in it, tiny, soft beams of just the same colors you can see in the dew sometimes. He remembers the quality of the glow on his wife's skin when she was baptized, how she lifted her face into winter morning light, new snow light. 
When I have seen the world a while through Ames's eyes, I become newly aware of the light in my own world, its cheering presence, its variety of expression. Narrative vision, shaped by maternal attention, shows me more of the world than I had seen before. Thank you so much um, for summarizing the essay and also reading that excerpt. That's probably um, the idea in this piece that jumped out the most at me that I connected with the most as far as a mother. um, My own experiences with motherhood were, I like to say I crash landed into motherhood um, just because of certain circumstances and health issues. And around the time my kids were, I would say, one and three, I read um, Kathleen Norris and some other writers and became more acquainted with Benedictine spirituality. And one thing that um, those books and writers taught me was the value of the ordinary and the value of the present moment and being attentive Mm -hmm. to the present moment. And when I grasped that, and my gaze shifted to the ordinary and the value and beauty of the ordinary. Um, it changed my mothering. Like, mm-hmm. not that it became all rainbows and, you know, unicorns, <laughs> but it definitely um, shifted the way I view, you know, my own mothering and the ways even our days unfolded um, each week. Um So thank you. I love this. And that's what, you know, the main thing this essay made me think about. Um, So what have you heard from other readers with regard to like what has stood out to them about this essay? What kind of feedback have you gotten from people? Yeah, um, I think there are a handful of my peers who are friends of mine who are just really hungry to be inspired as artists and mothers. One of them is a floral designer. Um, others are writers. So, you know, people working across disciplines, but all, all people working in fields where they have to be very entrepreneurial. Um, and, um, be very entrepreneurial while also, um, protecting the solitude and, um just quiet space where true truth and beauty can emerge mm-hmm. um and that feels overwhelming when you have little people demanding so much from your body and your time um and i'm sure there are different demands and needs, um, as you progress further into mothering elementary aged and high school aged children. Um, but that's uh, some of the feedback that I've gotten so far is just, thank you. I needed to, um, to have models Mm -hmm. for how to do this and to see that, um, the ways that motherhood is shaping me now, will ultimately bear creative fruit. I don't know how old, I don't know the timeline of when Marilyn Robinson was writing um, the Gilead series, but I, I believe at least based on publication date that her children were grown by then. Um, 
And so it's, it's also just encouraging to think, okay, maybe this, this is a time for honing my sense of attention. Um, and that work, the work of care that I'm doing now will bear fruit in the long run. But then Leslie Jameson, like she's, she's got a maybe three-year-old and she's killing it. (laughs) You know? Yeah. She's publishing regularly. So there's also, I think it's also helpful to be inspired that like, maybe we don't have to wait. Maybe there are ways to, um, to, to power through and, um, uh, and write and share our writing with audiences even now. So, well, and what's interesting with, with my story with regard to, um, learning to give my attention yeah. um, more deeply to the present moment and to the ordinary was that that's what made me want to be a writer. Um, like that's what fueled my writing, um, early on and continues to fuel it, um, in many ways now. Um, but yes, amen to, you know, writing even when it's hard, mm-hmm. um, but make, you know, of course, making adjustments and caring for ourselves and our mental health and everything along the way too. Yeah. Well, um, I'd love to hear, um, about a little bit about what you're speaking of writing practice and what it's like right now as a mother of young ones. Um, what does your writing practice look like right now and how has it changed over different seasons of life? And can you notice, have you noticed some of the ways that writing now with young children um, has been a gift in your life, even though it is obviously more difficult in certain ways? Yeah. Um. So my writing practices right now um, look look like this. I try I try to get up um, earlier than my family, which in my family, thank God, is not that early. Um, <laughs> I have somehow trained a toddler to sleep until nine a.m. Oh wow! Yeah, so um, I get up at seven. I give him a bottle. I put him back to sleep. And then I have usually two hours to kind of get myself together and sit down and read or write or attend to some of the more administrative aspects of being a writer, um, which right now looks like uh, audience engagement on Instagram. Um, and in past seasons of my life has looked like querying agents um, or putting together book proposals or, um, uh, pitching essays or submitting essays to literary journals and magazines. Um, reading is a very important part of my writing practice, which is something that was not true until I went to graduate school. Um, Charlotte and I are, um, classmates from the Seattle Pacific University Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. And in that program, which I did from 2016 to 2018, um, I developed habits of reading. At that stage, we were reading about a book a week Mm -hmm. and writing 
just a two page, um, annotation about one aspect of craft that the writer was using effectively. Um, and, and then, um, churning out a draft of a creative essay every three weeks. Um, I don't keep up with the pace, um, but that general structure has been very helpful for me. Um, just in recognizing how reading inspires me and, um, generates ideas, um, either for the content of what I will be writing or for technique, um, for how I want to pull off what I'm going to be writing. Um, so I usually, I'm usually reading within my genre, which is nonfiction, literary nonfiction, I should say. Um, and often memoir, um, and just looking at how other writers tell their stories, um, and integrate things like research and other people's stories into their work or their own, um, their own personal narrative. Um, and how being a mother has shaped my practice. I, I did not do any writing for maybe the first six to nine months of my son's life. Um, and I felt very good about that at the time. I just knew that if I didn't give myself over completely to the chaos of infancy, um, that I would just feel like I was fighting against something, um, that was stronger than I could fight against. Um, and, um, yeah, so I really took a break. I read a lot at the very beginning when he was still like teeny tiny and sleeping on me all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he started moving and needing different things. And then I didn't read at all. Um, and I was comfortable with that. And then around nine months, around nine months postpartum, um, I began leaving the house. This was during quarantine. I would leave my house and go to my mother's house and sit up in a desk in one of the bedrooms and just, uh, try to write for like three or five hours. Mm. Um, I really needed like the distance from my own space, um, in order to get some things done and in the past few months, I've really been able to return to a more integrated practice where um, there's a daily rhythm of waking early and getting in a couple of hours of creative work um, before I begin my day job. So what um, are your plans when the baby comes? I don't know. I'm, I really would like to, um, again, just take a break and just be in the chaos and ride that wave. Um, at the same time, I feel a lot of really fun momentum right now in some of my projects. And, um, there's part of me that wants to cling to that. Um, so I think now more than with the first child, I feel the tension of like, Oh, there may be a cost to me just putting everything on hold. Mm. Um, 
but I think I was just doing some reading about postpartum self-care and um, I do think it will be better for me in the long run and for my creative life in the long run if I just um, rest as I'm able and attend to the little guy. Yeah. What did you do, Charlotte, in those early? Um, I wasn't a writer. Yeah. Um, I worked after my first child was born. I was working um, part-time from home for our church at the time. And I just kind of kept working when I could. There was no, like, um, there were no demands of my time. It was just I had certain things that I needed to do and I could do them as I had time. And that worked out pretty well. Um, I kind of wish I hadn't worked at all though, you know, when she was a baby. Um, and then by the time my son was born, I wasn't working anymore. I was journaling a whole lot, um, which was how I started as a writer was, I mean, I journaled my whole life. Um, and then I started a website when they were little, I wouldn't call it a mommy blog cause I didn't really talk about being a mother. Um, and that's when all of the blogs were starting um, way back in the day. I'm older than you are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but it, it's when I started writing more um, seriously and when I was in the MFA program, there was always kind of a tension between um, what does my creative work um, need from me and what does my family and friends and other relationships um, need and not just what they need, but like, what do I want to give and what do I want to receive? And um, thankfully my husband and um, other family members and even my kids have been super supportive of my writing and the time that um, I give to it. So, I mean, I will, they, they were grateful when I finished writing the book. <laughs> I will say that. Um, that was a little stressful for everyone um, because I had deadlines and I had to do certain things by certain dates. Um, but they were still super supportive and encouraging through that process. Um, yeah. So um, I'd love to shift now to hear a little bit more about your interest in women artists um, and the ones that inspire you, um, the ones who have stories that inspire you and how they um, have practiced their art through motherhood and beyond. So um, I guess tell us a little bit, but I'd also want to hear about which women artists specifically that you're drawn to. This interest for me began um, when I was working at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and um, I went back to work after three months of maternity leave. My body was still like very much in postpartum mode um, and uh, I remember just walking through the galleries looking for company. Like, who are the women on the walls? Um, and I saw a lot of portraits of the artist mother, the artist always being male. Um, and he drew his mom. Um, I saw a lot of Madonnas, mostly drawn by men. 
Um, I saw very few works by women artists and even fewer works by mothers. Mm-hmm. So my interest in women artists and mother artists came out of a lack that I noticed um, in major museums like the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, So I started just doing research and thinking about um, who are the women artists and um, were any of them mothers, were any of them in in the history of art able to um, do both at once. And recently I've been asking around just friends of mine who um, don't work in the arts. Maybe they, um, they like art, they're interested in art. Maybe they're members of their local museum, but they didn't study it or anything like that. And I ask who off the top of your head, can you tell me three women artists or five women artists? And we could play that right now, actually, Charlotte. Oh God. (laughs) Who comes to mind? Um, Visual artists? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if I'm going to pronounce everyone's names right. So, oh, do they have to be mothers? No. Do I have to know if they're mothers? Okay. So Frida Kahlo? How do you Mm -hmm. say her name? Kahlo. Kahlo. Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, oh God. Uh, I should know more. So this is the, I mean, I know some, I know some contemporary artists, like local artists who are women who I adore, but, um, not like famous in the museum. Yes. Yep. So that's the exact answer that I've gotten from maybe 15 people that I've casually asked. Mm. Um, Frida Kahlo was unable to have children because of a accident that she was in young in her life. And Georgia O'Keeffe did not feel that having her own children would be compatible with her life as an artist. Um, she had a, a grown stepdaughter, but didn't raise her from birth. Mm-hmm. Um Another kind of household name is the Impressionist artist, Mary Cassatt, not a mother. Um, And there really are not other women artists that most people in the U.S. can think of off the top of their head. Mm -hmm. So that's just really interesting to me. Um, And I would love to learn more about women artists and specifically those who were mothers or are mothers um, to tell their stories and to be inspired in my own creative practice as a writer and to help inspire other um, women that I know that are trying to navigate um, motherhood and artistry at once. Um, So some of the people that I've come across, a lot of them are um, contemporary artists, like you said, Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are local to Philadelphia, but are, um, gaining, um, recognition from major New York galleries and, um, large museums. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk about two that I'm really interested in. One is Alice Neal, who, um, is 
she's no longer living. She was born in 1900 um, and was um, is celebrated for having preserved portraiture through um, the 20th century, which was in the New York art world pretty dominated by abstract art. Um, but she painted people. Um, and she used some of the tools of abstraction to, um, enrich the form of portrait of like realistic portraiture. Um, she was mother of four children. The first of her children died of diphtheria when she was, um, just about to turn one year old. Mm. Her second child, um, she did not raise and her second child was born pretty quickly after she lost her first child. Um, and she's famous for having said, I loved Isabetta, my second daughter. I did, but I wanted to paint. Mm -hmm. Um, and her second daughter was raised by her, um, the parents of her husband who she, um, did not remain married to. Um, so she lost one daughter to death one daughter uh, to this kind of ambiguous separation. Um, and then about 10 years later, she, she birthed and raised two sons. Um, and, uh, I, I'm really interested in that kind of ambivalence about mothering, Mm -hmm. um, the way that as a, as a young mother, she did not feel that she could do both be an artist and, um, and parent. And then, uh, I think she was in her forties when she raised her sons. Um, but I, I'm interested in, um, how, yeah, how as mothers, we, we, we want to do, I won't speak for everyone. Um, some mothers want to be able to do both, um, and really struggle to figure out what that balance will look like. Um, and then Neil is really interesting because she um, painted seven pregnant nudes. So um, mm. one of the first artists to disrobe the pregnant body and um, to paint it in all of its exaggerations and discomforts and and beauty. Um, and then she painted a lot of portraits of mothers with their children. So she had this fascination throughout her career. Um, with the mother-child relationship, and I love that. Mm-hmm. The second artist that I'll mention is Becky Suss, who is a Philadelphia-based um, painter, and I love her work. It's it's different from Neil's in that she paints interior spaces um, that are kind of whimsical and a mix of things that she has actually seen and things from her imagination things from books she read when she was a child, um, things from the internet that she was like, Oh, it would be really cool to have that rug. Let me put it in a painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the intricacy of her paintings, um, hones my attention to the beauty of the domestic sphere, the way that Leslie Jameson talked about, um, there are not people in any of her paintings, but there are all of these, um, 
details with intense personality that make me really wonder who lives in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they they draw my attention not only to the um, interior details, but also to the details of personality of those who might inhabit the spaces. So mm-hmm. I love her work. And she's a young mother. I think she has a maybe three-year-old. Um, and... I know, I just know about her practice that in quarantine, she like really prioritized not seeing anybody except her parents because her parents um, spent time with her child so that she could paint. Mm -hmm. Um, So she just kept her, I mean, we all did, but really intentionally kept her circle small so that she could preserve both um, the intimate mother-child relationship and, um, and then also prioritizing childcare so that she could work. Yeah, yeah. Um, will you send me links to their work so that I can add that um, to the show notes for this episode? Yeah, I would love and, to. And so I can look at their work. <laughs> yes. Um, and Alice Neal has an ex- a big exhibition at the Met right now that's open through August 1st. And Becky Suss just had a painting go up at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, so if you're an East Coast mid-Atlantic person. There are a couple of opportunities to see the work in person, um, but there's also a ton online. Oh, good. Great. Um, I have just a couple more questions for you. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about how um, art, your creative work, and the work you engage, the work of others that you engage, um, how does that help you belong to yourself, others, God, and the world? And you don't have to touch on all of those <laughs> different ways to belong. But how does art deepen your belonging? Mm-hmm. Um, beauty gives me the sense that the world is not such a scary place. The world is a scary place, um, and loss can surprise us, take away the things that we most cherish. Um, and there are big scary systems out there. Um, but beauty in an artwork, a piece of music, um, a book, or in my child's face or in the flowers that I just planted in my planters. Um, just remind me that the world is also a place of abundance, um, a place of joy. And, um, a place of delight. So I feel more at home in the world, Mm. um, in all of its absurdity and, scariness um when i interact with beauty mm-hmm. um and yeah i feel like they're just little uh nudges from god saying it's it's okay to be here and um no matter what happens in the long run, I will be with you through these traces of beauty. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, are there a few things right now that are inspiring um, 
your creative work or creative work you want to do in the future? I've mentioned a lot of the things that Mm -hmm. are inspiring me right now. Um, I will also just mention uh, creative community. So um, Mm -hmm. just sustaining relationships with fellow writers um, like you and some of our other friends um, and just carving, being sure to carve time out for conversation with other people who are striving both in the practice of um, creating something true and beautiful and also in figuring out how to connect with audiences um, and share our work in a meaningful way and in a way that will create opportunities for us in the publishing world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like that should be a um, podcast episode one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do we um, live in both of those spaces in ways that are meaningful and um, that nourish us and that help us create work for mm-hmm. others to be nourished? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um is there anything else you'd like to share or discuss that we haven't talked about? I do want to mention IG Live Lullaby before we stop, but is there anything else you would like to talk about? No, I think that covers it. Um, yeah, I love being able to talk about these things. So, so thanks for making space for that. Yeah, me too. Thanks again for um, being willing to do this and for having this conversation. So I do want to tell um, listeners about your IG Live lullaby that you do on Thursday nights and Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Um, It's about 10 to 15 minutes of restful, lovely goodness and beauty. And you just have to show up and watch. Um, And it's a beautiful offering that Kat and her guests um, invite us into and you know, there are so few things that nourish us that re- that don't require our own time and energy and brain power. And this is one of the things that does that for me. So f- thank you for doing that. A, <laughs> B, I hope others will, um, you know, uh, follow along and watch the ones that are on your Instagram account, right? They're there, all of the ones you've had so far. Yep. Yeah. If you just go to the tab on the Instagram um, profile, that's channel, I think it's called. There are about 20 episodes. Great. Yeah. Well, um, I will let you go now. Um, This has been wonderful. And um, again, you can find cat online will you share your um instagram twitter and website links again or urls whatever yeah so on instagram i'm by katherine ricketts i don't hang out on twitter very much but if you would like to find me there it's cat underscore ricketts um and check out my website where you can find um, links to the essays that I've published. And another expression of my creative life is songwriting. So there's some music up there too. That is Catherine Dana Ricketts.com. 
Um, and there you can sign up for a monthly newsletter that is very brief, um, but just gives links to things that I have published and um, music and art and sometimes recipes um, that I enjoy. But it's not a heavy read um, because I don't like reading other people's newsletters usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's all for this episode of Our Faith in Writing. Thanks so much for listening and giving your attention to the ways writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. I'd love for you to visit us online at ourfaithinwriting.com, where you can find more information about my spiritual direction for writers and other contemplative offerings, read essays and articles by writers who care about faith, and learn more about our partners and sponsors. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charlotte Donlin. Subscribe to Our Faith in Writing wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show, letting us know how these conversations help you feel less alone in your writing life and your reading life.